Welcome to the Borgen Podcast, the only English language podcast about fictional Danish politics. On our show, we explore the people, events, and parties that make up the fictional Danish parliament on Borgen. I'm one of your hosts, Amy, coming to you from Istanbul, Turkey, and I am, as always, joined by my good friend and co-host Chantal, who broadcasts from her beautiful room with a fabulous view in Toronto, Canada. Welcome! Welcome! Hello, Amy. How are you? Hi. I'm hot. It's hot, <laughs> and not in a good way. Well, maybe in a good way, but it is literally hot here. It's now 9 p.m. on, uh, I think it's Saturday. I'm, I'm on holiday until... Monday. So I don't know what day it is. Um, it's hot and very humid in Istanbul as usual in the summertime. So I'm mostly just trying to stay as cool as possible by eating a lot of watermelon and hanging out with the cats in the shade at home. Mm-hmm. Well, it's uh, 2.04 here on a Saturday in Toronto and the weather is starting to cool down a little bit. So that makes me very, very happy oh. and excited. Lucky you. I would Fall kill for a snowfall. Season. Fall is my favorite season. So yeah, just before we get into our episodes, um, we're recording this uh, in August. I just wanted to let people know. And so like Borg in the Power and the Glory has been released in June. And yes, we will get to that. And I watched all of it this this uh, earlier this summer. And I just have to say that watching uh uh, the series a it was great because it's the Borgen universe back mm-hmm. kind of in updated form and b to watch a series set in greenland while you're sitting on the edge of the mediterranean in 38 degree heat celsius that is was lovely <laughs> i was like "Ooh, it's snowing there oh that's oh. nice <laughs> and like i'm canadian I'm a, I'm a canadian national i lived in toronto for a long time that's how chantal and i know each other and I never thought I would say this, but sometimes I miss those winters. (laughs) And I never thought I would say that ever in the history of forever, but apparently I miss them. (laughs) Well, you're always welcome to come back here and visit during the winter and help me shovel the snow at my mom's house. You know what? I'm all in. I have, when I, my, my, I have friends here who have a summer house in Spain. You know who you are. And uh, I occasionally get to go there in the summer times when we're all on holiday because they're teachers as well, teacher friends. And uh, I often do a little heavy lifting. I've broken rocks and, you know, helped install stuff there. So it's like, I'm, I'm good. I'm a great house guest. I do labor. Yep. And next time you come, promise. Me, I'll be saving my jobs for you. Anyway, <laughs> with that, let's get into, uh, yes. we usually don't talk, and, and when it's a bonus episode, we, we talk more, but usually for these uh, recap and discussion episodes, we don't talk as much. So, sorry, listeners, hope we were not boring to you. Um, so, we're, we're never talking boring. about, we are never boring, that's what we think. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we hope, that's what yeah. we think too, listeners. Anyways, um, so today we're going to be talking about season two. I'm going to be covering uh, episode seven and Amy's going to be covering episode eight. So I'm going to start with episode seven right now and let's Let's get get into into it. it. So um, episode seven opens up uh, at Parliament and uh, we see Brigitte getting dressed in her office and she's changing her blazer for the third time, clearly caring about how she looks. Niles comes in to tell her that Crone is here and she tells him not to go overboard with the special cookies and coffee just because it's Crone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Crone is here to see Brigitte to talk about Africa and they're seated at a table in her office and he says to her for the past 10 years 
Denmark has joined forces with the US in wars. Our immigration laws have done away with our image as a tolerant nation. Our poor reputation in the Muslim world has cost Denmark a fortune, maybe 1.5 billion Danish kroner a year. So what's happening is that there's a civil war going on in Karun, which is uh, whereby this, the Christian South of Karun wants independence from the Muslim North. And the, the North side is opposed to this. Um, so mm -hmm. Krohn says that the EU has tried to find a mediator among the union's head of state. And Brigitte says that Africa is a very complicated uh, situation and it's too much of a political risk. She asked Krohn what's at stake for him in Africa. And he says a 5 billion Danish kroner entrepreneurship deal to build oil refineries. Aha. Uh -huh. Always says, yeah. Always the oil. And just a always side note, yeah. uh, the, the country of Karun is uh fictional. It's made up, doesn't really exist. Yes. Just in case anybody wasn't sure. Don't go look for it on a map. It doesn't exist. It's not there. Yeah. <laughs> Brigitte says, quote, the interests of Denmark's largest corporation can't dictate my policy. I'm afraid I'm gonna have to let you down as she stands up from her chair and gestures him to the door. As he's leaving, he tells her that he has had the impression that she was a visionary woman as he towers over her at the door about to leave. She says that she prefers her visions to be her own. So the next day we see Brigitte in her office telling the nanny what to make for dinner and the nanny's to, and to make sure that the nanny has made sure that Magnus has eaten his vegetables and a reminder for Laura to take her pill. Next, we see the Freedom Party, which is Svendage, uh, has placed an ad in the newspaper and TV1 has called three times for them to comment on it. This is uh, uh, Parliament and, and Brigitte and Casper to comment on it. Casper does not really think that Brigitte should be commenting on the Freedom Party's views, but Brigitte, Brigitte says that she disagrees and this is a chance for them to stand by the laws they've carried through. Later on at home, Brigitte goes with Laura, or later on, Brigitte goes with Laura to one of her medical appointments to see the therapist. This is a progress and check an appointment. Laura has been having trouble sleeping and the doctor says she will get better, but she has to stay on the medication a few more months. Katrine shows up to parliament and tells Casper, takes Casper behind closed doors for a romantic kiss. They're both happy to see each other and be in each other's company. Katrina, Katrina is there to talk business about the upcoming interview later that night that Brigitte is participating in to discuss the Freedom Party's ad and Karun. Katrine also is trying to figure out why Krohn was there at Parliament a few days ago. Casper tells her that Krohn and the Queen play bridge every week. He does not divulge anything, but I don't think Casper knows what Crone was there about at that point in the episode when Crone and Brigitte meet. So Brigitte has kept this a secret uh, that what she discussed with Crone is was between Crone and her. Um, at TV One, the interview is starting. Brigitte is there with her foreign minister, Hans Christensen Thor Thorensen, and Svend is there with Hesselbo. Svend asks if the war in Karun is bringing more refugees to Denmark. Hesselbo asks, won't, quote, won't the PM's relaxed immigration laws lead to more refugees seeking asylum in Denmark? Brigitte answers, quote, yes, Denmark will get more refugees when there's a war in the world and that the government believes 
our nation is obligated to help those in need. Katrine asks that Denmark is asked if Denmark is struggling with financial debt and crisis. She asks, can we afford to be idealistic? Brigitte says, quote, we can't afford not to. We are the 12th richest country in the world. These people are in need. Sven wants to know why she can't help them in their own countries and why they must come to Denmark. Quote, what do these people in their flowing robes want in Danish suburbs? Brigitte says that, quote, their country's at war, their home is in flames. Sven says, it's wildly naive to think that little Denmark can make a difference. After the TV One interview, Brigitte is back in her office and has the news on the TV. The reports are saying that many villages have been destroyed. There's rampant violence against women and girls and North Karun's UN ambassador rejects this as pure propaganda. The five permanent members in the secret of the secret of the Security Council do not agree on adopting a resolution giving the UN the mandate to intervene, nor were there any actual sanctions imposed. The sole outcome was a declaration of principle urging both parties to stop fighting. Brigitte summons Casper to her office. It's 3 a.m. She says to him, quote, say I told you, I think that we should try to stop the war in Karun. He laughs and asks her if she's serious. She says she's considering it and that the UN is urging a head of state to mediate. No one has volunteered. Casper tells her that's because it's a lost cause. He tells her that this is all about her and that, quote, you're pissed because you can't force anything through parliament. She tells him to sit down and tells him that they have a unique opportunity. Quote, we share we chair the Security Council at the moment. She points to, out that the Norwegians tried to make peace between Israel and Palestine. Casper says they're killing each other. Brigitte says that the Oslo Accords brought Rabin and Arafat together and they almost succeeded. Brigitte said she's made up her mind to move forward with this. Bent comes to Parliament the next morning to visit. They fill Bent in on the Karun business and Bent says, Brigitte, you're insane. He looks at Casper and asks Casper if he did not try to stop her. But if this, if this is going to move forward, he tells her that this war is being described as Muslim versus Christian and that we should get a Muslim negotiator. And he suggests Amir. Brigitte goes to Amir's house where she meets him. She tells him she's sorry again for the way things ended and that he's no longer in parliament. She tells him that she's considering being an EU mediator for this situation in Karun. Since the North Karun, since North Karun is Muslim, she'd like a Muslim negotiator. He tells her that this is a doomed project and he knows that the polls are against her and asks her if this is not desperate. She says, quote, a major African country faces a catastrophe that could be averted. He tells her that she's just doing it to boost her image and that he's a nice Muslim and political leveler in your prestige, prestige project. She says, no, this isn't prestige. And she's asking her, asking him to go with her into a burning house. He tells her no and she leaves. Brigitte has a meeting the next day with Casper, Bent, Hans Christensen, and Hans Christensen's permanent secretary. They're discussing the situation. Hans Christensen says 
that the British are choosing to follow the Americans on this, which is that they won't pressure South Karun. France won't pressure, will not pressure North Karun, nor China, as China has a population of 1.3 billion and increasing energy demands and the, the, and they buy their oil in Karun, which means that Den, means Denmark and Brigitte are on their own in this attempt to force them to negotiate. Bent is on Brigitte again, telling her this is crazy. She has one year left in power, and this is risky and insane to, adept, to attempt to negotiate in Africa. But if she's really going ahead, she needs an ally. And he ta he's talking about Crone. Brigitte meets with Crone and tells him that she's going to attempt to negotiate in Africa, something we know that would be advantageous to Crone and, frankly, all of Denmark. And she tells Crone that if this fails... She wants his support in the media on the front page and to his friends in the opposition. She tells him that if she fails, quote, you're going to you're going to go public with your support for me the day after, not on page eight, but on the cover of the right wing papers. Please remind your friend Hesselbo to commend the PM on her initiative. Crone is impressed by her and her idea and says they have a deal. Katrina and Hannah Holm go to the residence of someone who is an associate of Crohn's in an attempt to figure out why Crohn and the PM are meeting. And yes, what is the connection and reason? Does it have to do with the war and Crohn's economic interest in Karun? And the, is Crone concealing his business in Africa? The man does not really give solid answers. And Katrine says that the government troops are allegedly behind massacres in Karun and clear area to clear areas for oil companies. And she asks this man if he knows anything about it. And he says no. Later on, Brigitte's meet, Brigitte is meeting with her permanent secretary, Niles. Hans Christensen and his permanent secretary in Bent, Amir shows up to parliament and says that he wants to help now. The situation is too important for him not to help with. Brigitte has the idea for her to personally lead the negotiations. Amir agrees and says, in my experience, this will lend respect to the entire peace project. Brigitte goes home to find the babysitter, Anne, who's still there. Anne has fed the kids and left chicken in the fridge for Brigitte. Brigitte tells the kids that their grandfather, Brigitte's dad, is going to come and stay with them for a bit because she has to go away on a work matter. Laura tells her that she's never home. Magnus is okay with it, but Laura is not as enthused. She comes to talk to her mom alone in the kitchen and says that she does not want to keep taking pills. And Brigitte says she has to. Later, Brigitte calls Philip over for coffee and updates him on things. He's going to stay at Brigitte's house and take care of the kids while she's gone because Brigitte does not want her father to deal with all of this background stuff. And Philip agrees and he'll stay at the house. Later, Niles comes up, comes to update the group and says that the president will meet Brigitte when she arrives in Karun. It is a bit of a conflict between Niles and Bent about going to Africa. Niles says he's a liability because Bent was recently sick. Ben says that Brigitte can't do this to him now and he'll bring a doctor's note, his respirator and his walker and he'll be fine. Brigitte, Amir and Ben arrive in Africa and are met by Veltfield and who is their contact for, for Africa. He drives them and says that they've been booked at a hotel where they will stay. They'll also have negotiations and meetings there. He warns them that the rooms are bugged, so be careful. He tells them that, he tells them that the president, Al Jawar, is, in, is a Cambridge man graduate of Cambridge, but he will likely speak to her in Arabic, and he's a bit staunch in his thinking. The representative of the Foreign Office comes to meet Brigitte. 
Uh, Amir Bent and the foreign minister, permanent, permanent secretary is also there. And he tells Brigitte, the president won't, will not meet you today because he's away on a trip, but one of the advisors from the oil industry will be able to meet. She shuts him down very quickly and tells him, quote, Mr. Bagani, I have to remind you, I'm the Danish prime minister. I only negotiate on the same political level. I will not negotiate with a civil servant. Bagani says he's afraid that there's nothing he can do. And she says, well, my trip was in vain then. And she begins to walk out the door down the hall without stopping or turning around. He follows her and gets on the phone immediately. Amir blasts him in Arabic. And seconds later, Bagani and Brigitte, said, and she tells, he tells her that the president will meet her today in a very short while. Brigitte wants to know what Amir said to Bagani. And he said that he told Bagani it was a very disgraceful way to treat a Muslim brother and that the Crone Industries would like to give their head of state a gift. So I really that. liked that, actually. I really liked that. That was one of, and it's so, I mean, like I live, just to interject, I mean, I don't mean to interrupt you, but I do live in a predominantly Muslim country and that sounds spot on to me. I think, yeah, I can imagine like a Turkish guy saying to, an, you know, like, yeah, so, so not so disrespectful. You yeah. disrespected the, the prime minister, you've disrespected a Muslim brother. Yeah, who right? represents, she's there with her. It's kind of connected there. There's, it, it's, the connection is implied. Yes. It's definitely implied. Yeah. Yes. So, so Brigitte and Brigitte and Al Jawar meet. That's the president of the or, or the leader of the North. And Amir Bent and the foreign minister's permanent secretary is also in the room. He speaks in Arabic, and Amir translates his words to say, "I'm sorry to inform you, but your trip to Karun is pointless. Our troops have all but defeated the South, so I don't see any reason for us to make any concessions." And he stands up and he's about to leave. And Brigitte says, and I love this so much, she says, allow me to be bold, Mr. President. I'm sure that certain people in the Arab world think of Denmark as an arrogant anti-Muslim nation that is full, that is a friend of the US. The West sees you, Mr. President, as a war criminal because of your actions in the Nubizia province in the past five years. They certainly don't see you as the highly respected politician and Cambridge fellow that your people regard you as. They say you shouldn't judge a book by its cover, but we still do, don't we? To me, it seems that both of our nations can profit from a change in the international perspective among our nations, wouldn't you say? Is it not worth a couple of hours of conversation? So the president's listening and he says, and he agrees, let's talk. So back at TV One, Katrine and Hannah figured out that Brigitte is not in France and that Katrine says that she can prove that the PM and Crone were meeting about Karun. Katrine had rummaged through Casper's bag when he was over at her place one night. He ran downstairs to pick up takeout. He left his bag upstairs. She looked through it and she found the itinerary for Brigitte's African trip in his bag. Han puts, Han puts the idea puts Katrine in her place, telling her that she only got those documents because she's dating Casper and that she cannot, we cannot give it to Torben because Torben will question her relationship with Casper. And in my opinion, Katrine is out of line, of course, for going through Casper's bag, but that's the problem when you're, when you're dating, when you're a TV reporter dating the PM spin doctor, right? So back in Africa, Brigitte and, and her entourage are traveling to meet Jacob Lacoya, who is the chief of the, 
Tyenga clan. The advisor, who is the guy, who who is the guy who's the business associate of Crone, is 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 who is in Karun with them. Tells Brigitta, warns Brigitta, and says, uh, "Jacob Lacoy is a warrior first and foremost, not a sophisticated man. You'd be wise to acknowledge his skill on the battlefield. Be aware of his harsh stance on homosexuality. It's common here. Should he touch the subject, you're best to ignore it." So the next scene now, there's a flat tire, Brigitte on Brigitte's car. So her and Bent get out of the car and the whole entourage is pulled up, pull over and her and Bent are standing alone together talking and they look off into the horizon and they see a, a, a group of school children together laughing and walking. And Bent asks her who's taking care of the kids while she's away. And he wants to see pictures of the kids because it's been a really long time since he's seen them. And Brigitte confides in, in him that Laura has been suffering from serious anxiety and that she's been seeing a psychiatrist who's been putting her on, on, on pills. And Bent asks how Brigitte is doing. And she gets emotional and she says, it's hard not to be able to help Laura. Bent listens attentively and lovingly and tells her whatever he can do, let him know. She says she hasn't told anyone and it's strange to keep it all in. So the next scene now, the car is fixed. They go to meet Jacob LaCoya. And my first impressions of him is that I really like him. My spirit immediately took to him. He's very warm and welcoming with a kind, big, bright smile. And he tells, she tells him that China um, if China insists that that he wins is they win their independence, they will use the North Pipeline to sell the oil to the Chinese. And Bent says, um, tells him that you know he will be an independent country, and freedoms are dictated by whom Jacob and South Karun will sell their oil to. So Brigitte stresses that China should pay no less than market value for Jacob's oil. She carries herself as usual, so classy and ladylike, and she tells Jacob that it would be an honor for her to conduct these negotiations in Copenhagen. And Jacob has a very positive and thankful attitude, saying that they have great resources in Africa and they just need to work on them and that it's not an easy task to create a modern democracy and that he's trying to reform the South Karun society in both spirit and in technology. And it, this is fine, except that he goes on to say that, quote, everyone in South Karun is entitled to equality and freedom, except the homosexuals, of course. But that is not a problem. There is no homosexuals in South Karun. It's not part of our culture. And so with that comment, I changed my tune and, tune and I, I, um, I, I don't like him anymore um, after hearing, hearing that come out from his mouth. So yeah. getting towards we, the end of We this, were warned. We were warned. We were warned. We were warned. But I would yeah. like to give people the benefit of the doubt that they, they changed their mind, but not this guy. So getting towards the end of the episode now, back at Katrine's apartment, Casper comes in and confesses to Katrine that Brigitte has been in Karun for the past five days and tells her that it looks as though like peace talks will be held in Copenhagen soon. And remember, of course, Katrine already knows that because she had searched through his bag and found the itinerary. The next morning, back at Brigitte's house, Laura goes to wake Philip, who has slept the night on the couch. It's 7.30 in the morning. He tells Magnus, Philip tells Magnus to eat his breakfast and that Laura needs to take her pill. She says no, but he insists, and he goes with her to the bathroom and watches her. She puts the pill in her mouth and sips water, pretending to swallow it. A few seconds later, we see that she has not swallowed the pill, and she takes it out of her mouth when he turns her back. The last scene of this episode, episode seven, is that Brigitte and her colleagues are heading back to Denmark on a plane. 
Everyone is asleep except her. And she looks around at each of them with a look of gratitude and satisfaction firmly on her face. And that was the end of the episode. Yeah. And the, this, the episode I'm going to be talking about is part two with the negotiations in Copenhagen. And it's, it's really quite intense and interesting. Um, I, I had to step away while you were speaking just for a second, because there was a really big beetle in here and I had to throw it out the window and my cats were a little too interested in it. So I took care of that little crisis. I had a little crisis of our own. We have negotiated with the beetle. The beetle has retreated (laughs) and withdrawn his presence from the living room to the balcony where he belongs. So there you go. So Um, my thoughts on this episode and I'll go from the you know I do have a few points to say I'll just go from from the top a bit just just go down so do I I wrote some things down um okay great so I think Philip is a really good dad and I think that Brigitte should lean on him Mm -hmm. more because he's not going to say no to taking care of his kids he's an excellent father okay yes of course and I'm glad that he at the end she chose for Philip to go there not her father Mm -hmm. um and the other thing I liked about this episode, so as I told Amy offline, this these two episodes that we're talking about today, I'm doing seven, Amy will follow me and talk about eight shortly, were the two, the two best episodes for me, the most standout episodes, definitely. Of yeah. this um, and I love, again, we talked about this a few episodes ago, um, is that time moves very quickly here. So, you know, in one part, we see them at home in the parliament, you know, talking about their plan, getting all the ducks in, in a row with Crone and all, all that. We see them go to, 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 South, to North Karoon first, then South Karoon, and that goes very quickly. There's no wasted time. The audience is not feeling bored. Like, it's very engaging, you know? Yeah. These two episodes are action-packed and very fast-paced. There's, like, no downtime. There's no downtime. Um, yeah, it was. it's very intense. And you have this parallel kind of parallel plots, right? There's a crisis developing in Brigitte's home life and the crisis that she's dealing with in these in, in Africa. And um, I have a comment about when Svendaga said, like, these immigrants in their flowing robes, A, how ridiculous is that? And it just like, it was just like, oh my God, may a guy like him never end up in Toronto where there's <laughs> to like- in power, yes. Yeah, where you can be, I mean, well, we kind of have dofo, but you know, um, where you can be in a subway car and you can be the only person from your cultural background in the entire subway car. That is possible in Toronto. You yeah. can do that and hear like five or six or seven different languages. Yeah. And uh, I used to live in the same area as you. Like I used to live around um, the east side of Toronto where there's a huge Greek population. And, you know, I used to really enjoy, like you could walk down the street on the Danforth in Toronto, and you can hear people like start a sentence in Greek, switch to English, and switch back to Greek again without batting an eye. Well, and I will also say, because I used to live in New York for four years, yeah, the difference even, between here yeah. and in New York is that people seem to be more proud of their culture, that kids are speaking in Greek. We have a, a good friend of ours who's oh, yeah. this podcast. Hello. Um, Hi. Um, who is Greek background and listening to her stories and other Greek friends of mine, you know, my, one of my best friends is Greek from Greece yes. that moved here. And Hi, I know her too. <laughs> you know her too. Yes. Um, at home, you're taught to, you're going to go to, to, to Greek school or yes. learn about Greek dancing and you're going to learn 
Greek at home because that's what we're going to talk about. Yes. And people are not ashamed of that. And I, I think when I lived in New York, I didn't experience that. It was more of a melting pot of, yeah, oh, you're that. Okay. But now you're American. So just yeah. like spark that up somewhere. With a f- maybe with a few exceptions, like if you're, you know, uh, Jewish, for example, you might learn enough Hebrew depending on how conservative your family was, you might like learn enough for your like bat or bar mitzvah, or you might hear Yiddish at home from your like grandparents or something. It would depend, but yeah, generally the public voice is English, right? And that's that's just a different cultural attitude between America, the United States and Canada. Um, I, I find that too, like people tend to retain, and also maybe it's a newer generational thing too, people tend to retain their home languages and home cultures and and, yeah yeah i mean even okay look at my background okay so my mother's family's french canadian but my mother grew up in western canada on the west coast okay so her there was an enclave of french speakers in vancouver made up of mostly quebec and you know around like quebec and saskatchewan oddly there's a french community there um people who came to like work the sawmills when um, Vancouver was being developed as a city in the early 1900s. So like my great grandfather spoke French, my grandmother spoke French. When my mother's generation came along in like the 19, late 1940s, 50s, in, in early 50s in Western Canada, no French. My grandparents didn't speak French to them, to their kids. So I lost my hereditary language. Mm-hmm because it wasn't classy to be French speaking, working class and Catholic in Vancouver at that time. And now my nephew went to French immersion elementary school. Yeah. So there you go. So, I mean, and I worked in the Toronto school board as a substitute teacher for a number of years and lots of immigrant kids retained like, you know, their own names, names aren't anglicized like they used to be for immigrants as often, you know, kids are kids are way they're fine with like they seem to accept other like oh your family's afghani oh yeah mine's from bangladesh oh yeah mine's from you know yeah. my my parents one parent comes from one caribbean place and the other comes from another caribbean place you yeah. know yeah. so it's like very multiculty and it's it's really nice actually it's i think that helps societies i i think so too so um another point i want to talk about in this episode is that Again, we see, and we we talked about this in our previous uh, podcast episodes, is that it's it's odd that Brigitte has no close friends, no female yeah. friends, and that's so when she she keeps all this inside, and you know she says in this episode that it's very hard to keep it all inside, and she tells yeah with I'm, with Laura, I'm so glad she tells Ben, um, yeah, me too, because he's he's nothing but loving and caring and mature and responsible, and will always help her. Yeah, he's definitely got that parental role figure. He's like a mentor to her. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And I also think that if we saw her with friends, it would add more dimension to her character. But perhaps it would take, perhaps maybe why the show didn't do it. I was thinking about it. This is kind of odd not to see her ever socializing with friends that don't belong to a government. Yeah. Um, Is that perhaps it would take time away from her as the PM with regards to screen time and showtime and and all that, right? And is that even realistic? Does the prime minister have time to hang out with her friends? Maybe not so much. That's true. And the other thing we previously touched upon is that sometimes, especially women friendships with other women, there's a lot of um, 
perhaps there could be a lot of jealousy or resentment. How come this panned out with you and not me? And, you know, you're a powerful woman. You think you're better than me. Like a lot well, of, well, yeah, that's a possibility. And in TV land, it's even more of a possibility, right? Yeah. Cause that seems to be a plot line that people pander to frequently. I'm fortunate enough not to have encountered that much in my real friendships, but it does happen. It's something that does happen. It's one of the more destructive aspects of female friendships, actually. So um, why do you think uh, Brigitte changed her mind? About? Because in the beginning, she said, no, 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 I don't want to. I, I, yeah, so she didn't want to do it. She told Crone this is like too big of a task. And then she, you know, said. Maybe out. because maybe I think maybe. First of all, it's an opportunity to flex some of her diplomatic muscle. Mm -hmm. Okay in a fairly high profile environment. Uh, it involves the UN, it's, it's a peace mission, which is something that uh, like is aligned with her politics. Yes. Um, and it seems like, you know, it may be an opportunity to extend her own knowledge of how things work outside of Denmark too. Yes. And I, I do think ultimately it's also all of those things. Those, those are definitely in line with her political policies and personal policies of, you know, we don't discriminate against people here. This is a country, yeah. country in need. She talks about Denmark being the 12th richest country. She has to yeah. uh, step in, but also she, she recognizes and can admit that this will, despite all these great humanitarian sides to it, the other side of it is the economical side. Yeah, and that this if they can get peace here, then Crone can go in, and I think they they called five billion dollars. Yeah. Uh, David Croner. Yeah. Um, there's there's always an economic side. There's always as soon as oil is on the table, people other if there's oil involved in an, in a quote unquote developing area of the world, Western nations will stick their fingers in. There's, that's just the way it is mm -hmm. because we are oil dependent still. Um, you see, when we get to season four, this is what the whole of season four is about, is, is mm -hmm. about oil rights. Mm -hmm. um, so it's interesting that it comes up a few times in the series, but it is an international issue. It's super pressing. We know this mm -hmm. um, from the current political situation. With, life. Uh, well, yep. and with, you, with like Russia and Ukraine, Russia provides natural gas. I think mine... That damn beetle is back in my house. Anyway, I'll deal with it later. Um, Russia uh, distributes natural gas to most of Europe. And if things go badly there, I like, will gas prices go up? Will I, my gas be cut off this winter? It's something that I'm actually thinking about. Mm -hmm. So petroleum resources are always key political issues, no matter where they pop up. Yeah. Um, there's one more other little side reference I'd like to mention to people. Um, it's a refugee story that's set in Denmark. A, a little film came out in 2021 called Flea. And it's, uh, Flea is an F-L-E-E, -E, not F-L-E-A. It's not about the Red Hot Chili Peppers bass guitarist. Um, so it's about uh, an Afghani refugee who comes to Denmark via Russia and Sweden and a lot of complicated issues as a refugee and and when he lands in Denmark he has no identification like you know he's he's fled illegally he's they've done the human trafficking thing 
that failed, there's a lot of twists to the plot. And when he lands in Denmark, he says to like the Danish passport authorities, refugee. And he gets taken care of by the state immediately in a relatively, it's depicted as a relatively compassionate and accepting way. They're like, he gets taken by, you know, the passport authorities or they take him to immigration. And he's like, that's it, I'm gonna get sent back. I'm, I'm done for. And they're like, absolutely not, you're not being sent back. We're gonna process you as a refugee and look after you. So that is the Danish policy for refugees, or it was at the time when he arrived in, the film is set in 20, is from 2021. He's looking back on his childhood and youth and I'm as an adult. And I think, you know, that would have been maybe, I don't know how many years ago. I can't remember the age of the character, but he's like in his thirties, I guess. And it's based on a true story. And um, he's reflecting back on his life as a refugee because he's also about to marry his partner who is a man. Mm -hmm. So there's that angle as well. So not only is he an Afghani refugee, he's also gay and he finds a place, a home, a safe place in mm -hmm. Denmark. That's great. So, yeah. I mean, not that I'm encouraging everyone to run to Denmark if you're a refugee, but if you happen to get to a country like Denmark, yeah, at least you have a chance, yeah. you know, and people like. saying like, why, you know, Sven Daga giving that classic conservative line, why don't you go back to your own country, which we hear a lot with the Syrian refugee crisis, Ukrainian refugee crisis, all the refugee, Yemen, Afghanistan, pick yeah. one. Okay. Mm -hmm. There's, I think, how many refugees? I saw in a statistic, we were talking about it in one of my model UN clubs about the number of refugees, it's like in the millions, 5.5 million refugees in Europe or something, but that might be low. I can't remember if that's, a, if it, or if it's double that, I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's a lot. And um, the reason why people can't go back is because a lot of the times there is literally nothing to go back to. Yeah. I just saw a film. I have a friend here who's a journalist, a photojournalist. He's been in Ukraine. He posted a little story about this woman who owns a pet shop. And she is walking to her pet shop in the morning and she gets there and it's gone. It's been blown to pieces. What's she supposed to do now? You know, so for people just to be like, why don't they go back to their own countries? It's like, well, how? Yeah, exactly. So with that, Amy, should we move into the to episode eight? Yeah, Continue let's get into uh, peace talks. Story, yeah, let's 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 take a look at that. Oil, peace talks, diplomacy, and weapons. So, okay, I've I've divided this kind of because it was such, <clears throat> pardon me, it was such an intense episode. I, I've divided it into kind of three sections. So I've got the government, I've got the media. And I've got kind of um, Brigitte's home life. So I'm going to start off talking about government and I'll switch back and forth a little bit, but just to keep kind of the plot lines clear, because they're very twisty in this episode. So in Copenhagen, we're back in Copenhagen. Everyone arrives back in Copenhagen. Peace talks between Jakob Lukoya, the South Karenese leader, Karuni leader, I guess, uh, who was Karenese. elected. Karenese. Karenese, yes. Okay, yeah. Um, uh, was elected on the, this independence platform. He's elected um, uh, on his stance to gain independence from the North. Uh, and Omar Al-Jawar, who's wanted in The Hague for atrocities committed on the South Karenese are set to take place in Copenhagen. 
We see Birgitta watch this on the 630 News, so we're up to date as well. I really like that device that the show uses to update the viewer on the plot twists using TV One reports, as well as like the characters in the story, like everybody gets the information at the same time. Uh, the foreign minister has three groups in the negotiations, the oil group, the Seraphan group, and the Green River group. They all have different things that they're asking for. The African Union, the EU, and the UN have sent observers. Uh, I was once in a model UN uh, conference where the African Union and the Arab League declared war on each other. That was really exciting for the kids. It was really fun. Um, but fortunately, it has never happened in real life, I don't think. Casper informs the group, uh, Mir is also there working, that some media is criticizing Denmark for negotiating with a war criminal and um, reminds everyone that the warrant, uh, the, the, the warrant from The Hague for Al Jawar is only temporarily suspended. He arrives first, and as usual, he speaks, speaks strictly Arabic with uh, Newborg, uh, with Amir translating. This is fine, but it does show a level, a level of his stubbornness and his kind of will to assert dominance over her because yeah. um, he speaks English perfectly. He's a Cambridge graduate. Yeah, I mean, and that's on. their common language together. She, yeah. He's Danish first, but she's conversing in English. And I think it would have been respectful for him to do the same. But again, it asserts dominance. Yeah. And he only does it when she kind of calls him out. Like, right. In when you mention her speech about, like, may I be bold, he actually answers her in English after that point. Yeah. Because she called him out and said, and she yeah. called him out and she outed herself to say, I know you're a Cambridge fellow. Yeah. And I know you're I know you were educated in the UK. Yeah. And I know you're a war criminal. So don't with me, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, she does that, but oh, beautifully diplomatically in her classic style. Um, so uh, immediately there's a crisis. A city in the north is attacked by a southern contingent, uh, which is and it's a city with oil resources. Aljuar chastises Bigrita, uh, saying that this is what happens when you deal with Lakoya. He says that in English. He leaves the talks altogether at this point, but remains in Copenhagen. Brigitte's not happy, but what is really happening? Then we see Lakoya arrive. This is the government plot. This is not chronological. So if you watch the episode, it's not gonna line up. But anyway, Lakoya arrives and states that the city of Orisia is in fact on the south side of Karun and that force that forces there were defending the city. Greta says this situation has affected peace talks and each side blames the other. The south agrees to drop a proposal but the north refuses face-to-face -face negotiations or any action until the south exits Orisia. In talks with Lakoya, uh, the Danish prime minister points out to the South uh, that the South should give up claims to Orisia for now to continue peace talks. And Lakoya, in a kind of sexist manner to us, asks Bent for his ideas about it, referring to him respectfully as uncle, mm -hmm. which actually I also do to myself. I have Uncle Bent written in my notes sometimes. <laughs> uh, Bent agrees the city is Southern, of course, Yes, we agree the city belongs to the South, but the peace process is more important at the moment. He quotes his own father, Bent quotes his own father saying, a new perspective is needed and to give up Orisia would be beneficial for the time being. And it's a temporary move only to excel the peace talks. Lakoya respects Bent's and therefore Brigitte's ideas, but isn't happy with it. Bent says, let Orisia be a no man's land. The South leaves, the North doesn't enter. It's off limits during this peace talk. And he agrees to that, that's okay. 
When uh, Newborg presents this idea to Al Jawar, he won't budge and accuses Brigitte of game playing. So she reaches out to Krohn. Krohn calls and will come to the PM's office. So he arrives there and brings info from a Chinese contact who told him that 40 Chinese helicopters are being sent to the North's capital with the intent of attacking um, the South. This would ensure victory by the North in a matter of weeks. He wants to remain anonymous. He's like, you didn't hear this from me. The Chinese ambassador is immediately called for. Casper throws it to the media to let the public know that peace depends on China, which is a gamble. Bent will warn the Southern contingent. Amir is charged with keeping the North there and Brigitte is handling the Chinese. Lakoya is set up uh, with the information regarding the Chinese helicopters and wants to leave and tells Bent this. He's like, he is afraid for his country. He's like, I gotta go. If they're coming, I gotta go. I gotta go defend my people. Mm -hmm. And Bent says, yes, you do. But stay 12 more hours. And if China doesn't stop in 12 hours, then you go home and defend your people. Give us a chance to handle it. Yeah. And Al Jawar is not happy about the media involvement regarding the helicopters. I'll get to the media stuff after this. But uh, Newborg's tactic is to humbly ask the Chinese for help, which she does. She tries to convince the Chinese ambassador that if war breaks out, 7% of the Chinese oil supply will be cut off and they will be forced to resupply from somewhere else, which will be costly in money and time and brokering. China appears to walk away with no solution whatsoever, giving the classic excuse, which comes up a lot. Oh, we didn't, uh, we, we just sold those helicopters. We have no idea what they're going to be used for. That's not our concern. Yeah, We're just selling the equipment. They, they don't yeah. care. They just want the money. Yeah, the equipment was ordered. What people do with it is not a, not our problem. Okay, it's like, so it's like if you sell a car to someone and they're going to drive it over their ex-partner, that's <laughs> not your fault. But it is if they tell you that's what they're going to do. But anyway, so that's the Chinese stance, which is classic. Okay, China walks off with no solution in the air whatsoever. In the morning, it appears China has left as Aljuar and his, uh, has left, has, pardon me, China has left the building. Aljuar and his staff officially have also withdrawn. It looks terrible. And even Birgitta slams her desk and yells, God damn it, till Casper comes in. Then the BBC report by TV1 comes on and says that the Chinese have stopped their aircraft carrier. So the Chinese helicopters are suspended, uh, which is great. And that means the Danes now have 36 hours to continue talks. In the background of the PM's office, there's a whiteboard with some of the terms of the talks that get panned by the cameras a couple of times. Some things that are there, which is great. And this is between all three groups, the Seraphin, Green, and Green River and Oil Group. Uh, rights to citizenship, right to, right to their own passport, autonomy, tribal majority, religion. There's a few other things. I thought they were all valid issues. There are things that come up. I might use this in my model UN. I was thinking as a teacher, because it's summertime, so I was thinking as a teacher, like to use this about how to do diplomacy in my classes. I might use it as an example. Um, so Casper drafts a press release in case everything fails, but he struggles with that. He Bent, Brigitte, and Sana are all late at the office. There's this great montage at this point with points for each of the three groups being crossed off the whiteboard. A lot of dossiers are handed out, a lot of coffee and water is being poured, and the work and negotiation goes on. Okay. Now I am going to jump ahead to 
the sort of that's like part one. Okay, that's part one of government issue. Now, part one of the media. Okay, Katrine and Casper are mostly living together. It looks like there's an ongoing tension or a bit of a struggle with separation of personal lives and work, as you pointed out. Katrine asks how the PM's office and the foreign minister managed to get the arrest warrant suspended for Omar al-Jawar, the leader of the Islamic North in Karun. And Casper replies, who's asking? The girlfriend of the reporter. But that seems good natured. It's kind of like it shows their banter, their back and forth tension. As the leaders arrive at the PM's office, the T, uh, at TV one they plan to show some photos of murdered Southerners. So there's like, they have evidence of war crimes. Hannah Holm is looking over the photos when she sees Niels Mikkelsen in the photos with Mohammed Aziz, who is a general of Al Jawar and responsible for many nasty civilian deaths and murders. And he shows these to Katrine, okay? Or uh, she shows these to Katrine. She's like, come over here and look at this. As they look at these photos, Torben comes and informs them there's been this attack in Karun the Orissia attack. And we see the PM's office uh, that we've seen at the PM's office and Hannah tells Torben about the photos, but he's in a rush to put Katrine on the air to talk about the new attack. Katrine in the second before she breaks the story on air calls Casper and says uh, about this attack and uh, the Mickelson thing and says, I don't know anything. He doesn't know anything about it. Torben won't act on the photos with Mickelson as the peace talks. This is Mickelson is Crone's guy, by the way. Right. Um, but we don't know exactly how he's Crone's guy. It's never really explained. He's just- And I think a, he has a double name. A business associate. Yeah, yes. that's coming up. I will get I will get there. That is coming up. I will get there. So Torben won't act on these photos because there's no real proof. Mickelson is Crone's man in Karun and he and Crone has denied knowing about these atrocities. Mickelson has denied knowing about these atrocities. He says it's a great story, but needs too much research to do at this moment with all these peace talks happening. He tells Katrine and Hannah can be done after the talks. And they're like, throw, we'll throw it to documentary eventually. So naturally, Hannah and Katrine disobey this directive and go and talk to Mickelson immediately. <laughs> so like, I love it. They're like, did you hear that last part? No, I didn't. So they go and talk to him. So which is great. And then they're told they need an appointment, but the photo gets them through the door. They go to his house, actually. I believe it's his wife that answers the door. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Which is pretty bold when you think about it. Like, you don't know who this guy really is. Like, it's pretty bold to mess with him. Anyway, he says, of course, he was horrified at these things. And Katrine hits him straight off. Or what were you doing there if you had no knowledge of these events, which took place before the war as villages were being cleared out to make way for oil projects? Now, this kind of action in Africa reminds me a little bit of different situations there like North and South Rwanda. Um, and that was a complete disaster. The UN completely fucked that up, to put it bluntly. Um, there is an, the Canadian, U, Canadian UN troops were there on the ground uh, as were Belgians who kind of exacerbated the situation based on what I've read about it. There's an excellent resource called Shaking Hands with the Devil by General Romeo Dallaire a Canadian general who was there on the ground and has been very public about the PTSD he suffered from dealing with that situation. So if you want an in-depth, actual, factual documentary look at an African crisis where there's tribal warfare and invasions and genocide, read that book. It's the best resource I've found. I think there's also a documentary about it that might be floating around on YouTube, 
by the same name, shake, shake hands, shake hands with the devil. If you Google that and Romeo Dallaire, you'll find it. Um, anyway, so Mickelson says he doesn't know about this. He's, you know, he, he was just passing through. He puts them off. He says, oh, we'll meet later. We'll meet later. We'll meet later. He keeps trying. He's trying to keep control in his hands. He ends up as a no-show in the meeting that they arrange for later. Uh, his phone is offline. His landline is dead, a dead end. Katrina points out rightly that he must be hiding something. Hannah points out that if two annoying bitches, that's her words, I love her so much, start calling all his contacts mm. in business, they, things might get a little bit difficult and awkward for him. So that becomes the plan. Through this, they discover from other colleagues in the Netherlands, uh, you see Katrina on the phone to like a, a Dutch journalist, that Mickelson is known there by another name as an oil industry player and that villages have in fact been cleared for oil exploration. It seems like oil is being used as an excuse for ethnic cleansing, but it is hard for them to def find definitive proof. And this kind of thing happens all the time, all the time. I would say probably in the 20th century, at, after since the end of World War II and since the end of the Cold War, Okay, all the other bits and pieces of warfare that's happened has been at its root cause about resources, in, in particular petroleum resources. It's a hot issue. It's a very hot issue. Okay, so now I'm going to touch on a little bit of Brigitte's home life, if I can find my right page. Yeah, okay. So this is a much smaller subplot, but it's also very important, okay? So as we saw, Brigitte has this au pair um, nanny on to help with Magnus and Laura. And Laura continues to struggle with her anxiety and is resisting taking her medication, as you mentioned. She seems out of sorts when Brigitte has um, to work extra hours, in fact, days at the office. She's not there um, for the peace talks. And as you said, uh, Philip is there staying with them. And I think what I really liked about that scene between Philip and Brigitte when they were talking about Laura's problem and, and him staying there, it's, it's not even an argument. There's no yeah. hesitation on his part to be like, I can't do that. I have my own life or any yeah. nonsense. Yeah. It's just like, of course yeah. I'll stay. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. They both automatically put the welfare of the kids first. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful to see. Yeah. And, and like you rarely, it's such a civilized, like I realized, you know, they got divorced and like, there's like this, it's problematic. There were problems in their marriage because of her job and stuff. But when it comes to like the post-divorce co-parenting thing, they're doing great. They have it nailed. They're, they're, they're perfect. Yeah. They, they are and it's, so in sync. Yeah. It's one of the most mature and emotionally intelligent yeah and emotionally intelligent and and kind of realistic portrayals of like a relatively healthy co-parenting situation that i've ever seen yeah on tv i mean in and, real life and, i've seen it but on tv it's usually like that's a really easy way to amp up conflict in a storyline and yes Borgen, the writers of borgen don't stoop to that level no and they they don't do the regular you know we just recorded a yeah episode uh 
just now about Casper Yule. And we talked about the regular, what is the regular story? Oh, we're always used to seeing this and we're used to seeing that. That's what I love about Borgen. It, it's, it's not focusing on the traditional or the that's what right. we're used to seeing, you know, they, they're, they're going deeper and flipping things upside down and then telling that story, which is yes. far, far more interesting than the story we've seen thousands of times. Yeah. And the subplot with Laura here in this, the background scene, it actually involves Magnus a little. Yeah, so Magnus, which I'm so happy to see more yeah. Magnus screen time. Yeah, and yeah me too. Yeah, I, I really like those kids. And I think both of the actors who played those kids are really excellent, especially uh, Laura. And Magnus is such a young, is like such a young actor playing that role. He does a wonderful job. I love watching yeah. child actors who are very good. Yeah. Um, it's it's really uncanny. Yeah. So and this is a very Mag difficult situation, Laura's. And it's yeah. not like, oh, I have a flat tire on my bicycle. Like she's going through something that something major taking her up. Yeah. And yeah. Magnus is confused. Anyways. And con concerned about her. Yeah. And yeah. so Magnus catches Laura flushing her pill and expresses concern about this to her. Right. He's like, why are you doing that? Why are you doing all these weird things? Yeah. But Laura threatens him. Right. He's like, I will never. She says, I will never speak to you again if you tell. So this is the child pact, and his eyes get very big at that point. Yeah, he's scared of his big sister. He very scared, yeah. yeah. And he knows that he's being asked to do something that's actually wrong. Yeah. And not wrong in like, yeah, like, you know, don't tell mom I broke this, but wrong like- In a deep, serious way. It's pretty he serious. He understands that, yeah. Yeah, and he knows it's serious. He's obviously worried about his big sister, and now poor Magnus has an internal moral dilemma for the rest of the episode. Yeah. And I will get into that as I come back to this. But now I'm going to move on to the second section of the political, the second section of the media, and the second section of the home life. And then there's like a wrap up at the end. Okay. So excuse me if this is going on a little long, but it's pretty deep stuff. Oh, it's deep. And, and as we said offline before recording here, the days leading up to us recording, it's a dense, dense. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's you know, a very dense like story. How line. do you tell all of this in one Chantel and Amy podcast episode? But we're trying and we're we trying this out because everything is related here. And as we know, Borgen is very tight the way they write and fast. And it's important yeah. to cover everything to tell the whole recap. Yeah. And of course, these are the last, the, the second, second last pair of episodes yeah. for the season. So, of course, they're kind of big. I mean, episodes yeah. nine and 10 are also big, but. They need a nice climactic, you know, that demonstration yeah. of the whole politics thing to like really make it good. And so that's what they do. So let me make sure I'm looking at the right section. Yes. Okay. Government. After the Mickelson scene at TV one, right. Where the, the two annoying bitches go after him. No, angry bitches. Remember that? Angry. What, yes. That's what. No, uh, she says Augustine annoying. Calls them. Oh, yeah. Lawkinson yeah. calls them angry bitches, but Hannah calls no, them No, angry annoying. blondes. Angry blondes. Angry blondes. Yeah. And you said but, it should be a punk band. And I said. Yeah. <laughs> Hannah, Hannah calls them angry bitches, right? Annoyed yeah. bitches. Annoying bitches. Yeah. So yeah. after the Mickelson scene at TV one, we see Brigitte at a press event right before the, the state dinner about the negotiations. Jackie, my cat just jumped on the table. Sorry if you heard a noise. There's a beetle flying around and she's chasing it, which she shouldn't because it's a stink bug. And if she eats it, she's going to foam with it mouth. But anyway, Tonya, crisis well, is all it? around. Do you want to go step out and do that and I'll talk? No, no, no. I can't yeah. see it anymore. I don't know okay. where it went. All right. So, um, but if you hear meowing, that's what it is. Okay. So, um, uh, 
you know, TV One asks if negotiations are on standby, and of course there are not. Brigitte expresses optimism about everything. Bent and Amir are sent off to finish up in their groups. It's not looking bad for Amir. He's got progress happening. He's done a really great job. I really like his character. I've seen this actor in other shows, and every time I see him, I get excited because I think he's excellent. Yeah. Um, so um, for Amir, at least, is doing well. Oh, my goodness. Hang on a second. I think I'm missing a page because I had printer problems. Okay, Let so me... you look for that, and as you're doing that, I will say I love seeing Hannah Holm and Katrine back at it again. Yes, and me too. The storyline here that they're that they're chasing and trying to get to the bottom of is quite climactic. And I just again how much we love Hannah Holm and we would love to work with Hannah Holm. We want a job at TV One, actually. Is there not a position? Yes. I would love to have it. I mean, I yes. can sign me up. Hannah Holm. Yeah. Sign uh, me up to and the pay seems pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> but also the respect that Katrine always has for Hannah Holm. We talked about that a lot and um, how sort of Hannah leads them into these great ideas and these daring situations, right? Yeah, and they just, I love it. They just disregard Torben's orders. Like, they're just like, we're not doing that. I love it. It's great. <laughs> and he, most of the time they act like, okay, they're being disobedient, but their 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 journalistic instincts are spot on. They're always quite correct in most of the time they're correct um they kind of remind me of speaking of we, we just talked in our bonus episode recording about the wire they remind me they got a little bit of that mcnulty thing going on so uh, okay i found i found my notes so sorry okay. about that um so bent and amir are off to finish up in their groups it's looking pretty good for amir uh casper's confronted by katrine with the story from mickelson revealing that north Karun has cheated the south out of 10 percent of the oil revenue in the amount of about a billion dollars a year over the past five years. Casper says like, that will ruin negotiations. So he's like, I, I, can't, I can't use this information. There's no way I can use this information. Um, and uh, he shows Katrine what they have accomplished. The Green River Group has finished giving 3.6 million citizens the right to choose if they belong to the North or South. The second group is also about to close their negotiations. There's good progress with the oil group. The two presidents are face to face for the first time in two years. So everything's come back around and land and oil distribution are being decided using democracy and not warfare. And as they're standing there, the second group is finished. Casper's point um, is that one story of corruption and cheating will be irrelevant if the peace settlement is completed and goes forward. Um, and uh, then if he goes forward with this information about corruption, it will ruin the chances for permanent resolutions, okay? And so um, as, as Brigitte exits the state dinner, the permanent secretary informs her that there's this problem with the news story in Mickelson and all of these kinds of things. Um, so let me switch back to the media section, okay? Um, so, uh, as the negotiations are carrying on, TV One is planning a story on the helicopters. Um, as the negotiation montage goes on at Parliament, Katrine and Han dig up more on Mickelson. Okay, so this is about, this is how Katrine finds out those statistics about oil revenue being stolen. A source, Katrine speaks to says Mickelson is facing problems with false identity corruption and bribery accusations, and that Mickelson would have known that massacres would be taking place. 
because of his activity regarding oil exploration. However, there's a lack of proof and uh, no one to quote on it. They can't get anyone to go on record. And Hannah thinks the story can't hold water. She says, let's hand it over to documentary, presumably to do the lengthy research that's necessary and leave it at that for a later time. But Katrine has one more idea. She calls Mickelson's house and tells presumably his wife that TV One will be doing a documentary on him. And the theme is violation of international law and corruption. And does she have a comment on that? She does not. But Katrine says, tell him the working title is Merchant of Death, which I thought was a great title. <laughs> this should get a response. And Hannah says, nice work. Can't teach you any more tricks. So uh, <laughs> within a few minutes, Mickelson's calling Katrine on her mobile. And that's when Katrina gets that information. So during the state dinner, Katrine and Hannah are talking to Mickelson. He hides behind the business in Karun being complicated and denies personal involvement in the massacres and so on. Katrine says, in that case, go on air and explain yourself. And he says he's, his living is based on integrity. Ha, that's cute. He's done, <laughs> he's done nothing wrong. And his network doesn't like having his network of people, his contacts don't like having reporters sniffing around. He makes a deal with them offering information vital to the peace talks in return for being left alone. Hannah says, if there's anything in the story, we'll consider backing off. It must be good because he presents them with this legal agreement to sign and like, okay, we're agreeing that you're not going to use me as a source. And then he presents them with the oil sales account. Next we see them show up in Casper's, like Katrine shows up in Casper's office with that information about the stolen oil revenue. And Casper's like, we can't, we can't talk about this right now because it will ruin the peace talks. And he's not wrong, actually. That can't be talked about at that point. Mm -hmm. So, but because this information has come to light, you have the prime minister, the permanent secretary, Casper, Katrine, Han and Torben in a meeting. Yeah, Brigitte wants facts, okay? Tell me what you know. Hannah says the figures they have are true, that the North has chewed the South out of seven to eight billion over the dollars over the last five years. Who knows this? Asks the prime minister. Hannah says the people in this room, North Karun and our source. The source is never questioned. I have a note about that at the end of this. So I'll finish, I'll wrap this up and then talk about that point. Gita personally asks them not to run the story and to preserve the peace talks. If they run the story, the Chinese helicopters are delivered to the North, the North arms them, and war breaks out that will be impossible to stop. This will lead to another refugee crisis, famines, epidemics, and all the other horrors that go along with warfare that we see over and over and over again in the, in the actual world, in the real world. Torben insists that the results of war aren't TV1's area of responsibility. They only run truthful and objective news. And Brigitte, ever the diplomats, says, that's your right to run the story, but please reconsider. Hannah ensures confidentiality of the meeting and then offers to hold the story if peace talks are successful, but will run it if war, in fact, does break out later, to which the prime minister agrees. And Hannah hands over the binder that Mickelson gave them. So... This is a huge demonstration of real democratic process and what actual freedom really looks like. To use rights like freedom of the press and information responsibly when it affects huge numbers of people's lives is amazing. There's no disinformation, there's no conspiracy, 
There's no request from a leader of a private media company to withhold this. There's a there is a request. Sorry, there is a request from a leader of a of a private media company to withhold a story to prevent war. He's asked to withhold the story to prevent war. Okay, does this happen in real life? I don't know, but probably sometimes it does. Wait on this story. Please don't reveal the story. It will affect this political outcome. Now. There's a, something called the Press Freedom Index, which is compiled by Reporters Without Borders. Okay, Denmark is ranked number two in terms of press freedom by the Press Freedom Index. That means they have the second highest ranking in terms of freedom of the press. So what journalists are actually able to report, responsibility and journalistic rights. Okay, There is in fact a TV2 in Denmark, which has recently come under fire in a documentary about sexism and its practices, which is interesting because we see that happen to Katrine and Hannah casually over and over again at TV One with like, you know. Uh, Ulrich's the, comments. Yeah, Ulrich's comments, Torben's comments sometimes, this kind of casual sexism that gets tossed around. This caused change amongst Danish media to better protect female journalists. Isn't that fantastic? Mm -hmm. So like, Freedom of the press and responsibility means things like this happening between government and the media. Like, we're not asking you to lie. We're not asking you to change a story. We're asking you to prevent a war. And so I think like that's super important. And considering that, you know, currently in the political climate that we face in the real world with disinformation, with conspiracy theories, with the lunatic fringe having a very loud voice in very large and strong democracies, USA, I'm looking at you, um, then it's very important that we remember that not all countries run this way, but that in fact, I would say things like press freedom and true democracy are actually not the common way of doing things. Yeah, given the state of the world that we're in. And I think a lot of people in Western countries forget that that's the case. Um, yeah, so that's kind of interesting. Um, so in the final scenes, okay, um, Bent reports to LaCoya, uh, Bent reports that LaCoya is ready to sign the peace agreement, but Amir says Aljawar wants to reopen oil revenue discussions which causes Birgitta to hand Al-Jawar the documents acquired by Hannah Katrine from Mickelson indicating cheating. This is a huge flex. This is a power move and I love it. She says, if you sign, this information stays confidential. You keep your cheat money and you can carry on with what is set out in the peace agreement. If not, she'll make the information public in Denmark as the reason the peace talks broke down. Yes, and she talks about she has the right to, yeah. to inform her, the people in the her people. country, around the world, what the real reason of this negotiation failure is. Yes, and it's it would be that, right? And yeah. he signs, okay, right? He signs because the next scene we see is a press conference with her and the two presidents declaring peace. The peace talks a success. Yeah. Brigitte is able to thank everyone, in particular Amir for their help. She thanks him for his skill, his unwavering precision, and his elegance. And I actually think he had wet eyes in that scene, which was yeah, fabulous. Yep, yep, I agree. To show and, him becoming emotional and very moved by these words. Yeah, and he she also follows his advice on how to deal with like, you know, Islamic customs and stuff, like 
her hair is covered. She doesn't shake hands. Right. She's respectful. You know, she she doesn't make a show of like, I'm the Westerner coming here. Exactly. Exactly. She doesn't flex her skin color. She doesn't flex her position as as a president Mm -hmm. in in or prime minister in Denmark. She's very respectful. And I do think that the um, success of these negotiations is largely because of Amir. Yeah. Knew how to get inside the head of these guys. He knew how to, you know, sort of gingerly step over and between. Yeah. And yeah. And and she couldn't have known that. Right. She's not. Sure. And he he ex- he's not there with the talks for Jacob LaCoya because he's like, if I appear with you when you're talking to him, it'll look like you're supporting the North and that will just disrupt things because of- That's like, right. I thought so, it was actually very brilliant that he did that. He, he was not ego driven to say, well, I don't care. I'm here. I'm a star. He yeah. said, no, no, no. I'm going to back out because it's going to offset the balance here. Yeah, and he handles his group, his negotiating group is the first one to to you know clear all their agenda and to like seal that deal. Right. So he's an incredible diplomat too. Yeah. I it would I almost like I almost want to see like sometimes when I watch these episodes I'm like I want to see this show par- like from a parallel point of view like I want to see just Amir's story. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it would be so interesting. Anyways, Katrine back at TV1, this is the wrap up of um TV1 says uh the the media section says she does not want to run the story about mickelson and this amazes torben but she argues that many lives are at stake like they before they hand over the information to the you know to the to the pm um and she doesn't want to hand it over too many lives are at stake it's not worth it and that's when torben gets the call from the prime minister to uh go to the pm's office and they make this kind of deal of not, not to release the story and as they watch the prime minister declare the peace talks a success, Torben says to Hannah in perhaps the biggest revelation of the whole episode <laughs> that he owes her and admires her work. Like to me, that's like the biggest achievement of never mind North and South Karun making peace. <laughs> Torben makes peace with Hannah Holm. It's a miracle, <laughs> an absolute miracle. So in the wrap up at home, where, where things kind of you know, our tense, I mean, we see, we see Laura as, as Magnus continues to be, and Magnus is worried about Laura skipping pills. We see Laura go around the kitchen, checking that everything is turned off or unplugged in the middle of the night. Lack of, yeah. yeah. lack of medication is affecting her. Mag, Magnus questions her because he wakes up and catches her and she says, it's none of your business. And he asks in his child way, why do you do all this weird stuff? Yeah. So Laura calls Birgitta asking if, and uh, asking like, are you going to tell mom? Are you going to tell, are you going to tell on me? And he won't tell, he says, but he's obviously worried. Okay? Yeah. And so he doesn't know what to do. I mean, he, yeah. And he yeah. knows that this is not right. And he yeah. knows he's trying to protect Laura from the wrath of mom using the child code of not ratting, not being a rat. Yeah. But also, like, if he doesn't rat and something happens to her, it's going to be his fault. Yeah. He's got, he, from his point of view. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Birgitta calls back. Laura covers for both of them and said Magnus had a nightmare and she didn't want to wake the au pair. Okay. And then after the peace talks appear to be wrapping up, um, Birgitta speaks to Laura again, who continues to hide her pill skipping. And, and, and she, you know, she speaks to both of them. Laura is continually afraid that he will rat her out. 
like she speaks to Magnus on the phone and Laura, Laura's like staring at him. Nervous, yeah. Yeah, but it doesn't happen, okay? And then in the final scenes of the whole episode, all the lovely unity and peace is broken a bit on the home front when Brigitte receives a call that Laura has locked herself in the bathroom and is not well. A very scared and teary Anne and Magnus are there with uh, when Brigitte rushes home. And that's when Magnus tells Anne that Laura hasn't been taking her medication. I can see how this is a very hard position for a little brother to be put in. He has loyalty, like I said, to the child code not to tell, but he also knows that not telling could mean his sister's going to be very unwell and something bad could happen to her. And it does. Brigitte does this awesome, she kicks the door down. Mm-hmm. And like the mom, I mean, you know, I hate kind of hate this expression, but like the mama bear comes out, the protector comes out. Mm-hmm. The person who's responsible for Laura's life saves Laura's life. Yeah. Okay. By kicking the door down. So Laura's in a very poor state. She's unable to communicate. She's kind of in the throes of a very extreme, almost catatonic anxiety attack. It's like a seizure almost. It's it's quite dramatic. It's really scary to see. Um, I've seen some dramatic things at school with kids, like, but nothing that terrifying. She's admitted to hospital and stabilized, and the doctor tells Philip, who has come rushing there, and Magnus, that the that girls often stop their medications to prove to themselves that they're in control of something because everything else is out of control, which is completely understandable. I mean, that's why girls develop eating disorders and other, you know, sort of controlling habits like that, that, that actually are not good for them. Um, and a lot of young people feel like the world is increasingly out of control and have huge amounts of anxiety around world states of world, you know, with med or with meds or without them. And especially post pandemic, I've seen this as a very common thread with my students. They're much more anxious than they were before. And this generation is much more anxious than our generation was. It's just like stockpiling. It seems something is going to need to be done. I don't know what, but something's going to need to be addressed to young people in their mental health. Something has to be done. At the very end, Brigitte and Philip are sitting in the hospital corridor with Magnus, all exhausted. And on a TV, there's Torben and Ulrich discussing the prime minister's victory, but Brigitte starts to cry because there's no victory at home. And yeah. that's the final frontier and the place that matters most in the long run. So that was a long one. Sorry, people. Yeah, that was for a long one. With yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. Sorry for any mispronunciations as I rushed through. Um, cut me a break. I speak like through two and a half languages or so and danish isn't one of them so yeah scandinavian language is none of them no not even close not even close not even close why don't we go into a little discussion about this and yes we do apologize this is this is probably running a bit longer than usual but like we said it was a very dense episode we wanted to have them back to back because it actually is seven is part one to amy's yeah um, you can't separate part two so we couldn't really separate separate them so do you want me to start a discussion yes yeah so I, again, I will say an overall comment about Borgen, which is why we love it. And a lot of, you know, the the fans of Borgen, from what I gather from reading social media comments and comments on the internet, is that there it, 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 the show is so packed. Like yes. the show never insults the audience by, again, recycling, you know, traditional plot lines over and over again. It's never insulting to the audience that way. And to me, again, it's like one shock after another in these peace negotiations when, you know, when this stuff comes out about, uh, you know, 
I thought it was a real plot twist to learn that the North was skimming money from the South. As yeah, if that was heavy and dramatic enough. We have a plot twist to now say, well, actually, the North was skimming from the South. And how beautifully and brilliantly that sort of packs more drama into the story for Brigitte to yeah. then say, well, if you agree, we let this go. If we don't, you know what I mean? Like, it, 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 it's just it's it's she, she's now got so much ammunition in her pocket yes or yeah. that. and also like yeah. that seems in terms of like you know internal conflicts like these about resources that seems like a fairly common thing as well there's always corruption involved as well you know but how many times I mean, does the corruption come out and i think it's shocking when it comes out right because for me, this whole situation is shocking to begin it with. Yeah, it We're depends. Peace negotiations and talks. Yeah. When you start to unpeel things, you see there's more and more and more and more problems, right? Yeah. And you see the same thing in Brigitte, Brigitte's home where, you know, we have a plan. Laura's going to take this medication. She's seeing the therapist. But then you peel off more layers and you realize Laura doesn't want this and she's not taking her meds. She's now involved. Her, her brother is somewhat of an accomplice to this story. Yeah, a co-conspirator. Um, child is so confused. Both children are so confused what to do. Yeah. But um, again, I, I love the drama and, and intricacies of Borgen. Yeah, and it's dramatic without necessarily being over the top. You know, like... I believe Laura's storyline. I believe that that's something that real people really face. I've seen my students do that. Yeah. I've, I had a kid have a complete meltdown in an online MUN meeting um, at one point uh, about like home issues and anxiety and stuff and, and like a very similar story to Laura's. And that's very realistic. Um, one of the other things to point out, I mean, we're, you know, we're obviously very invested in the, in the show and in the storylines and in, we have faith in Brigitte's government to do the right thing all the time. But one of our friends pointed something out to you, mm -hmm. which is, is Brigitte's involvement in Africa an example of colonialism? More yeah. or less, that was the question, right? Uh, or savior. I think she or, friend worded as is savior complex. Savior right? complex, it's yeah. Realistic. And I, I took that comment to Amy. And maybe briefly, Amy, you want to comment on what yeah. when I asked you that question from our friend, I said, is this is this is this re real? Like is or is this yeah. show gone a little too is uh, it a little too easy? Is a little yeah. Was it a little too, a so little too tidy? Comment, you want to comment briefly on what your thoughts were? Yeah, when I asked you. I that. think like in terms of time and like how quickly this episode came together. Like she goes there; these negotiations happen in like three days. That never happens in diplomacy. Very, very rarely. I think. Has I that think happened. it was five days, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. That's, that's the point you're trying to make, right? That it's, yeah. it's not five days. Yeah, it's, no. I, very, very rarely. And, and, you know, if something is settled in five days in like another five days, it's like out of the blown out of the water again, you know, um, I guess, you know, a historical example, maybe we should, I, this is something I should have looked up before I talked about this was like the Suez Canal crisis with Lester B. Pearson. Didn't he negotiate that? The guy on our $5 bill. I think he did. But anyway, that was a successful negotiation, but like in, in, you know, even I know this from doing model UN and stuff and like realistically conflicts in developing nations where Western nations step in to do negotiations, it doesn't always work very well. And I pointed out um, 
the example of Rwanda, which was a unmitigated disaster. There's the war in Somalia as well that didn't go right. There's uh, the how many? Do you know how many years um, um, the U.S. was involved in Afghanistan? No, twenty. It was longer than Vietnam. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. And so it's like all of these proxy wars are like Western involvement doesn't seem to often solve problems. It often seems to exacerbate problems as far as diplomacy and warfare is concerned. So let me ask you a part B. Do you think it do you think in a negotiation it makes a difference to have a woman do it? I don't know because I can't touch upon this as you think mm. say one thing as you as you you get the wheels turning there. Um, we did talk about this in season one when um, Brigitte went to talk to Yvonne, who was part of Hesselbo's party. Ah, yes. Brilliantly, you know, they had things to talk about, which may not have been very pleasant, but the way they did it, you know, they had like tea out and things to eat. And it was a casual, you know, frank discussion. Yeah. There was no big macho ego in here. That's right. But it was also it was also a Danish female Danish politician to a female Danish politician. The cultural background, the 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 framework is identical. They're coming from the same place. That was that's easy. That's very easy. That's easy. But here you've got uh, two leaders of a developing nation, men of color, men of different religions. Yeah. And different extremity in that in their religions. Yes. And how how is a uh, white woman from Denmark received there? Yeah, right? exactly. And and uh, yeah, I think like as much as we want to say like, oh, you know, our 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 fictional Danish PM is the champion of everything. Because like she kind of is, but she you is. Know, <laughs> but like realistically in the real world, I don't think that that would have panned out as quickly and as easily as it did. And and maybe on like the show writer's part, like I almost feel like the, the, the idea that like the white savior slash colonialism, inter- Western interference aspect just got glossed over. Like that's not been addressed, but to some degree in Borgen season four, The Power and the Glory, that gets reopened. It's a slightly different situation because Greenland is a de facto colony, kind of, of a, like a territory of, of Denmark yeah. with you know obvious political ties. We'll get into that when we get to season four. But they're also like an independent culture. And so, you know, it's it's sort of addressed a little bit more so looking at that. And it's probably something that that um, the show would have been criticized about probably in the Danish press, not that I can read Danish, but, you know, as we know, um, okay. Like I can say like, thank you. And like, that's about it. Yeah. Um, so talk, everybody can say that. Yeah. Talk. So, you know, so I think from that point of view, it's overly simplistic, but I think when you look at the sort of elements that they pulled into this conflict to make it into a conflict, I think they were quite accurate about some of those, but like, only this would have taken like 30 years and not, not, not like five days. Not you know? five days. So yeah. I, I'll then move on and ask you a final question that as you were talking there was drawing things down. I was really afraid that the story would have leaked and 
I wonder how much, as you touched upon in, in your summary there, how often does this happen where behind the scenes, there are these sort of shake hand, let's shake hands and agree that we won't run a story for the benefit, the bigger benefit. And yeah. how much freedom and, 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 and right does the press have to do with that? Because the, the, the presses, the news story and the journalists, their first responsibility should be to inform the public. Yeah. and bring an, an unfiltered story to the forefront, right? A raw yeah. story to the forefront. Were they at fault in not bringing this out? I mean, or, or are they seen as part of the, I don't, want, I don't want to use the word corruption, but part of the plan to uh, hold it, right? Um, because they could have no, flipped it around very easy. Yeah. That, nope, I'm not listening to you. We don't owe that to you, Prime Minister. Yeah, well, Torben did say that. He did, he did say, say that. that. And then it was Hannah Holm that kind of said, well, no, let's let's think about this. If we if the peace negotiations are successful, we do not run the story. And if they fail, mm -hmm. then we run the story. But again, negotiation between woman to woman. This is where uh, Torben took the back seat, which was great yep. and secretly always recognizes Hannah Holm as a woman yes. stock and great skill. Yeah. He let her and do this. Yeah. And that's why, that's why he says what he says about like, I admire your work Yeah, because it's really her that, that ends up making, you know, because of that deal, like with her leading Katrine yes. to get this yes. information with the binder, because if yeah, they but I mean, that, I mean, specifically in that scene, it's, it's Hannah Holmes decision to like, this is how we're going to handle this situation. Yeah. And Torben doesn't think that fast. But she, she's right. always rapid fire yep. thinker. Yeah. So um, I think I do not. I think the press did the responsible thing by not publishing that story because it wouldn't have served any purpose except to cause more conflict. It would have broken down the peace negotiations. And as Casper pointed out to Katrine, it would have potentially created a war that would affect 3.6 million people. Yeah. So to 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 harm six three point six million people just so you can be right is yeah, kind or of be the first one the first one to report on the story it's definitely not worth it and what yeah. I do like in this in this whole series actually is how big of a character the press is and the yes. journalists are and the angle of a story and the questions you would ask someone because yeah it really does sort of set the tone here for a lot of things yeah right? and that's yeah so key to, in all this and that's also how we know the series wasn't made after 2016 because after 2016 with trump getting into the white house and the media landscape kind of globally changing because it's like let's face it it's all connected okay mm -hmm. yeah. um the the you know the 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 disinformation machine and the paranoia and the distrust has grown and like the also the also the the use of social media um the use of twitter as a news source the use of um, like a lot of news breaks on twitter right? yeah like before you know news broke on tv news like at in the newspaper yeah in the paper yeah in the yeah. morning paper that doesn't happen anymore no news breaks on twitter no and this is like no. i have a twitter account because I need to figure out what's happening in Turkey. And the press is, the press is perfectly free here, of course. <laughs> 
They have great press freedom in Turkey. <laughs> I see you rolling your eyes. Yes. The leader is great. <laughs> we love the leader. The leader is doing a good job. Yeah. But you see, you the see problem what I mean? now with the advent of social media, and social media is great for so many things, as we all can acknowledge, but um, is that anybody now can publish a story. Anybody can have a blog. Anybody can get up on Twitter. But the responsibility of the listener or the viewer is that you must check your sources. You must check. Yeah, and people do. People don't do that. And who's saying it? Yeah, who, and they don't. TV station did a TV station endorse this? Then maybe it's yeah. not right. Did a did a newspaper that's or some oh. random crackpot? Yeah, and the you responsibility know? of the viewer or listener is always yeah. to check your sources. Like and honestly, hardline you see. I don't think the average newsreader or average person looking at news online or whatever online YouTube videos or whatever has the ability or the time or the interest to bother checking sources. I think it's because we've we've entered. We have been in now the scroll culture. Everything is a quick scroll. Yeah. You don't read or. The- Look at, I mean, look at the way social media can be used to set someone up in such a way that they lose a court case. Yep. Yep. That, you know, that a, a different court case in another country ran and where the opposite party was found guilty. And yet that court case happens in America. You know which one I'm talking about. Yeah. Right. The Amber Heard, Johnny Depp thing. People are probably going to probably going to get hate mail about this, but I don't care. Um, so in the UK, uh, the, it's very hard to win libel cases in the UK. And in fact, the Daily Mail, which is even a, a crummy, fairly crummy tabloid express type newspaper, uh, won. And they based on. 12 out of 14 charges were found by that judge in the UK to be valid enough for the paper to have published a headline calling Johnny Depp a wife beater. But in America, in an open courtroom with a non-sequestered jury and a pop media campaign, I'm saying pop media because like TikTok and stuff were involved, all these supporters of him cherry picking little moments out of the trials mm-hmm. and which were broadcast and should not have been. And they were not in the UK because they don't do things like that there. Um, and, and showing, you know, Amber Heard is this like crazy crackpot woman. Well, of course she can't be, he's right and she's wrong, but based on what? It's not based on the judgment. It's, you know, I mean, I realize he, he was, she was asked to pay him damages and he was also asked to pay her damages, but less. But like, my point is, you well, know, it's, it wasn't- uh, it's this, it's this out of control media machine that influenced the outcome of that case. Yes. And, and I not- stand by that. And I'm like, I'll, I'll, I stand by that. I'm, I will not be swayed on this. Mm-hmm. I've had my students argue with me about it. And I'm like, you guys don't understand how to think critically about what yeah. you're viewing online. Well, that's what I was going to say. A TikTok video is yeah. not a news source. That's right. And it was not a comprehensive, unbiased review of it, the transcript in its entirety. As exactly. Cherry And yeah. And recently, all these Johnny Depp fans, petitioned the Virginia state or whatever state of Virginia to release these court documents of all of the stuff that, do you know how much redacted stuff was in it's, it does not make him look better. It makes him look worse. And in fact, I did read the judgment from the UK trial in its entirety. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I like, if you want a reasonable look at the case, go read that. That's a primary source that came from a judge who made a decision without the influence of the media. That's so my take. Bringing it back to Borgen, then there was a lot of justice done in this final these final scenes here, talking about um, the having the binder on the table, everyone discussing the you know the punchline of it, but also knowing the background of it as well and making an informed decision that if let's do this and this, and it yeah. was agreeable for everyone. It wasn't one person bulldozing their way forward. And yeah, I, I thought it was great, but the end of the episode left me a little bit scared of like, well, what if someone does leak it? But then again, this was back in 10 years ago when you know Twitter and whatever was not as rampant as it is now. Like- Yeah, yeah, well, it was pretty- to. Yeah, Twitter, tw- t- like when I arrived in Turkey, I arrived in 2012. In 2013, the Gezi Park protests happened against the development of a shopping mall in one of the last parks in central Istanbul. And um, the government cracked down very much on the press at that point. And Twitter was one of the ways that people got information mm-hmm. around. And so it sort of, for me, it kind of started taking off then as a source of relative, re- relatively reliable news. Um, and to the point where it was banned, Twitter access was banned and Turkey was shut off for a while and stuff during those protests yeah. because of you know inciting violence. And like, you know, there's been, ever since then, there's been a lot of crackdown here on crowds. A rock festival called the, the Olive Rock Festival um, Zeytin Festival, it was recently um, canceled because of fears of public safety. But who's the public being kept safe from? These are concert goers who want to go watch a concert. Yeah. It's been happening every year for like decade, like a, a while. So there was a bit of an uproar about that. I mean, so, you know, like I said before, I mean, in Western countries, you know, you have the freedom if, you know, COVID restrictions aside and stuff in normal times, you've got the freedom to go to a concert and like see your, you know, favorite people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's not an issue. And like the only reason things would be canceled would be like due to illness or like, you know, I guess safety concerns, like something after what Woodstock 99 happened, but nobody would ever fund a concert like that again. Right. So, um, but that was allowed to happen, even though there were concerns about how that concert was set up. So like, there's still this kind of freedom in most in, in, in the developed slash Western world, but in a lot of the other parts of the world, Turkey's not exactly undeveloped. It's definitely mm-hmm. like Istanbul is a very modern city that our, our, I hate to say this, my poor Toronto friend, but our public transportation system annihilates yours. Oh, in terms without of a doubt. I'm, I'm the first yeah. <laughs> out against Toronto public transit. I think it's, it's small and terrible, you know? Yeah, um, it's inadequate for the size to, of the city. To bring this back to Borgen, I, I want to say also I started talking about um, how this show, there's layers and layers of like shock and complexity that come out. Yes. The ending of the episode as well, I also felt that it was shocking to see that, oh my God, Brigitte has gone through so much and she stayed so strong and so she, she stayed the course of what she had to do and it came yeah. out successful. But then in the final scenes, we see her collapse. It's, yeah. it's, it's this with her daughter that, that breaks her. And, you know, she has, she has such a, 
tremendous victory, which she will be always, this will always be associated to her legacy as a prime minister. Yeah. But the problem and conflict at home to negotiate is how do we get the daughter better? So again, to your point about Philip, it was, and their parenting style together, mm-hmm. it was heartwarming and fantastic to see him there. Yes. And her there at the hospital and they held hands and we know it's not romantic. We know it's, I need your support right now. Thank yeah. God you're here. Let's keep it together and keep strong together as a family to help Laura through this. I yeah. love seeing that. And again, yeah. the shockwaves through me throughout the whole episode, my part, episode seven, your part, episode eight, it doesn't end these shockwaves and complexity right down to the final five minutes of the episode. Yeah, yeah. So it's incredible. And again, like it's, yeah. it's just so engaging. Yeah. And like, let's face it, like, African peace negotiations sealed in five days makes excellent TV. But in terms of real diplomacy, ain't going to happen. Ain't going to happen. But we love, yeah. love Brigitte Newborg so much. We're happy. Yeah. I, like I said, these were my, the standout episodes for me. I thought they were yeah. just. And the, thing, the you know? final scene is going to be a great transition into how the end of this season and the beginning of the next season develop. Right. And with that, we should probably wrap this one up unless you have anything to say, Amy, we can. uh, Oh, no, we've been talking for a long time. This is a long time. Very dense. Yeah. Sorry. I hope you've enjoyed this uh, conversation here. These were very dense episodes and uh, break it up and listen to it in parts. If you have to listen to the episode seven first and then the episode. Yeah. So so listen to it on the drive to work and then you can listen to it on your lunch time and then your drive and then your exercise session at the gym. We will keep you company all day. Yeah, exactly. That we'd like to thank our listeners for joining us on this long episode, longer than normal episode. You can check us out on our website, theborganpodcast.com, where all of our podcast episodes are archived and you can learn more about us and about the show. And don't forget to subscribe to us so you know when the next episodes come out. We'd like to thank our good friend Garth Jensen for providing our intro and outro music. Thank you very much, Garth. And lastly, don't forget to check us out on all social media platforms. We are there and we'd love to hear from you. Don't forget to connect with us and share what's on your mind by using the hashtag The Borgen Podcast or by sending us an email or voice memo to theborgenpodcast at gmail.com.